We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Jesus had been working many miracles all around the area. The blind got their sight back, the lame walked, the demon-possessed were set free, the sick were healed, and the dead were raised back to life. Jesus sent the disciples on a mission to preach the gospel of repentance and heal people all around. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 9. Jesus, at this point in time in his ministry, he's going to go to Jerusalem three more times before he goes to the cross. And each time he goes to Jerusalem, it's going to be more dangerous because the tide is turning against him. People are leaving him. Even some of his disciples have left him. Not the 12, of course, but others have left him. And, and yet, while that tide is turning against Jesus, and Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm going to a cross. It's going to end in a cross, not a throne. The disciples ignore those words about the cross, and they cling to their idea of the, of the Messiah, that he's going to reign. Everything's going to be great. We're going to get to reign by his side. And so while Jesus is focused on his mission of going to the cross, the disciples are way off course. And they ignore in the process the hurting people that are around them because they're seeking to build their own kingdom instead of Christ's kingdom. And so as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem, the first of these final three times, their behavior is going to become increasingly opposite of his, highlighting just how important it is that we remember our mission to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to serve others as we build his kingdom and not our own. So chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 49 as we continue this thought of the church's mission. It says here in verse 49, and John answered and said, and when we see answered, we have to go back up and find out what he's answering to. Well, this is in reply to Jesus's statement in verse 48 about becoming the least by serving the least. You know, Jesus, he was up on the mountain, and Elijah and Moses are there, he's transfigured, you know, they're talking to him about the cross, and, and what does Peter want to do? He says, oh, Lord, this is great, Elijah's here, the kingdom's coming, and you know, he says, how about we build some tents and we start the campaign right here on the mountain. And of course, the Lord interrupts. The presence of God comes on the mountain, interrupts Peter, and says, listen to my son. Stop talking. <laughs> you know, listen to my son. I'm pleased in him. My, he's my beloved son. I would stop the cross, Peter, because I love him more than you do. I want to see him on the throne more than you do. But this needs to happen first. So listen to him. Don't ignore him. They go down into the valley, and of course, instead of praying and fasting for this boy, he's demon-possessed. The disciples aren't doing any of that. And so Jesus, he heals the boy. He rebukes the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest. 
And so Jesus, he asks him, he says, you want to know who the, he tells him, he says, you want to know who the greatest is? He takes a kid. Just like the child they had ignored, that they weren't praying and fasting for, who was possessed with a demon, they couldn't help. He sets him in the position of honor, the place right by his side. And he says, someone who welcomes this child, who receives him, who's serving this child, blesses him, he receives me. And he receives me, receives him who sent me, my father. So if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be least by serving the least. Now, that's what John's answering here. <laughs> and his answer is this. John answering says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him because he did not follow with us. Let's get this straight. The first thing on John's mind after such an important truth of becoming the least by serving the least is what? Rejecting somebody. That's the first thing on his mind. Hey, master, you know, you know, you should be proud of us. We saw some guy, he doesn't travel with us. He's not part of your full-time disciple team, you know, and he was casting out demons. He was setting somebody free and we told him to stop. How opposite of Jesus is that? They didn't actually get him to stop. The word they forbade means we tried to stop him. They were unsuccessful, thank God. But the reason was is because he doesn't follow with us. He's not part of the full-time disciple team that went with Jesus wherever Jesus went. This guy didn't feel called to that, and yet he was still reaching out to people and serving hurting people. Listen, it's clear John's not really listening to Jesus, isn't it? He's not really listening to Jesus. He's still more concerned with building his own kingdom. Bad enough, he had 11 other guys that were his rivals that he had to try to beat out for greatest. Now there's some rogue preacher doing his own thing that John has to compete with. And he's actually being successful casting out demons when the disciples were unsuccessful. Jesus corrected the 12 because they failed to fast and pray for that demon-possessed boy. And then he tells them that true greatness is serving a child. But if John had had his way and this guy had actually been stopped, then not only the demon-possessed child, but other poor souls would still be in bondage to Satan, right? Let's stop freeing people from Satan. That's the answer. That's John's mindset here. And could it be more opposite from Jesus' words? There is such a dichotomy between Christ and his disciples in this chapter. You get embarrassed for them. It wasn't just John. He says, we forbade him. So they were all in on this. But he's just the one speaking up. Were the disciples jealous because they couldn't cast the demon out of this boy, but the, this other guy's having success in that type of ministry? Was it the, some weird loyalty to Jesus, not executed correctly because, well, he's not with us, so he must not be all in? Either way, jealousy in ministry, they were jealous, you know, misplaced for Jesus or for themselves. Either way, jealousy in ministry is not biblical. It's not biblical. We're on the same team if we're preaching the gospel, right? So if First Baptist or First Presbyterian or First Methodist, if they're preaching the gospel, right? I'm not talking about someone who's not preaching the gospel, right? They're not a part of the team. But if someone is preaching the gospel, the true gospel, you know, they're preaching the word of God, then if they're doing great and we're struggling, then we need to rejoice with them. We can't look around and go, must be nice, you know. They must have some compromise going on. It's so funny. We, I had uh, Mormons. So there, I'll, t I'll try to make the story short. It's a long story. 
we had a gal that was at my workplace, and uh, she got saved, and, and so we're ministering to her and discipling her, and, and the Mormons got a hold of her, got their, you know, their claws in her, and, uh, and, and it really attracted her because her parents weren't saved, and in Mormonism, nobody goes to hell. The only people who go to hell are, are people like me, people who preach against Mormonism from a pulpit right now, so, so I am, you know, I, that, seriously, that's the only people who go to hell. If you preach against Mormonism, those are the only people who go to hell. So that appealed to her because her parents weren't open to the gospel. As we're, you know, warning her about the Mormons, this is a cult, stay away from whatever, you know, she starts getting involved. Well, of course, as she's in it for a while, she realizes this is bad. I should not be in this. This is a cult. And so they are pestering her night and day. They're going to her home. You know, they're going to a workplace and everything. Uh, they had one time one of their elders called up, said it was her grandfather, her dad was sick or something, and they're on the phone to asking her why she wasn't at church. And of course, she's crying on the phone. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, it's not my grandfather. It's the Mormons, you know? And I was like, whoa. I'm like, they would lie? You know, they have no problem with that. So anyway, long story short, they heard that I was, I actually trespassed them from the workplace. And so they sent two of their bishops, you know, to, these are the head high honchos, and they sent them to my house. I don't know how they found out where I lived, but whatever. So they're in my home, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explain to them. I said, that's not the gospel. What you're preaching is not the gospel. This is the gospel. It's by grace alone, by, by faith alone. This guy gets up, and he's just pointing right in my face as I'm just sitting on my couch quietly, pointing in my face, you know, because that's what Jesus did. You know, he's pointing in my face because they've got the true gospel. He's pointing in my face, and he goes, oh, it must be nice. You must be a pastor of a really, really big church, you know, preaching that easy grace, whatever. I had a church of 20 at the time. Don't assume just because, you know, somebody, you know, is, is doing well that they're doing something wrong or they're having an impact, they're doing something wrong just because they're not doing it your way. Paul experienced jealousy from fellow ministers, but you know what's crazy? He rejoiced when they succeeded. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul, at this point in time, he's in jail. And, and as he's in jail, he explains that, that some people were, they used him as an example, somebody went too far. You know, and they took advantage of him to try to grow their ministries, to try to grow their influence. And so Paul says in verse 14 that him being in jail has made lots of people more bold. In, in, in Philippians 1.14, he says, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, they are more bold to speak the word without fear. That's a good thing, right? But then he explains, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. In other words, they're jealous. You know, they, they're trying to build their ministry out of the fact that I'm not around anymore, you know, and try to critique me. He goes, some also of goodwill. They're more bold because the fact that I'm here, they think, well, man, you know, I need to step my game up because Paul's not out there anymore. He says, the one preach Christ of contention. They're in competition, selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the others of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What do I do then? Verse 18, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. He goes, I don't care. He goes, as long as the gospel is being preached, I'm good. If they're succeeding because they're using me, you know, to gain more people, he goes, I'm fine with that. That's a pretty funny thought in our day of territorialism and competition. You know, why would Paul feel that way? First Corinthians 12, 26 says, when one member suffers, all the members suffer. When one member is doing good, all the members rejoice. We're not in competition. So we don't ever need to be jealous. 
Whatever John and the other disciples' motives were, whether they had this weird jealousy for Jesus or they were just jealous for themselves, either way, they were wrong. So instead of patting them on the back, oh, good job, guys, you know, Jesus, he corrects John. And Jesus said unto him, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. You know, the word for phrase forbid him not, it means you must stop trying to stop that type of person. Stop trying to stop people from serving God. Don't try to stop people from doing God's work. He says, for he that is not against us is for us. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that anyone who isn't hostile to Christianity is doing God's work. That's not what he's saying. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says the opposite. He says there, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. So, and, and that actually occurs later in Luke. So he's doesn't, he says this later on. So, Jesus said that to the Pharisees when they said he cast out demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus is saying, you are so far off that you guys are the ones who have more in common with Satan because you're opposing me. So the idea here is that Jesus says, listen, if you're not with me, if you're not preaching the same message, if you're not teaching the same truths, he wasn't saying if you're not part of my full-time team, but he's saying if you're not standing with what I'm saying, then you're against me. So Jesus isn't just saying, well, if if someone's not opposed to Christianity, then they're for Jesus. No, 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 no. See, if this guy who was casting out demons, if he was doing it in the name of idols or he was harming people while seeming to do good, and there are those out there who are doing that, then this would have been a totally different conversation because Jesus did that with the Pharisees. He had that different conversation. But this guy wasn't in opposition to Jesus' teaching. He wasn't in opposition to God's word. So Jesus says, let this guy be. Let him serve the Lord. He doesn't have to be part of my full-time team to, be, to serve God. It's an immature thought when I think that others aren't spiritual because they're not serving like I am. And I find people have that mentality at times. Everybody needs to be out on the evangelism team. No, everybody doesn't need to be out on the evangelism team. Everybody needs to make disciples, which we'll get to at the end of our message, but we all do that in different ways. We all have different roles. Now, a lot of times I wonder if some of us should be on an evangelism team, but we don't because we're nervous or we think I'd never be good at that. I'm always so shocked at who's good at different things in the body of Christ. So don't ever not do something because you think, oh, I won't be good at that, or I'm scared, or I'm nervous. I, I always laugh and chuckle that I stand up and speak to people. I was the kid in high school that would pretend to be sick when it was the day to give a speech or a presentation. I hated public speaking, hated it. The idea that God would call me to public speaking as, as my job, my career, my ministry, my part in the body of Christ is hilarious to me, you know. But God, he chooses the weak things for his glory. So it's an immature thought when I think that others aren't spiritual because they're not serving like I am. Every person wasn't called to following Jesus around full time and when he lived on the earth. Every person isn't called to do the same ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, it explains that there are not only different ministries, but there are different ways that those ministries are, are done. It's just now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of ministries, but it's the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations. In other words, there's different ways those ministries are, are, are done. But it's the same God which works all in all. That was 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, if you wanted to look it up later. The key is being faithful to the ministry that God has called you to. And so I ask you that this morning. Not are you doing what I'm doing or what somebody else is doing, but are you doing the ministry that God has called you to do? 
And do you encourage and rejoice with others who are being faithful in their calling? You know, let's not be critical of those who are fulfilling their calling faithfully just because it's not what we're doing. Let's be faithful in our calling. We come to verse 51 and it says, it came to pass when the time was come that he, Jesus, should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And so they went and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven to consume them, even as Elijah did? Jesus here, he's on his way to Jerusalem. So this conversation where Jesus had to rebuke John for stopping someone from casting out demons, from setting them free from the devil, that happened in Capernaum. So they're way up north, and now they're going to head down to Jerusalem. And it says here that it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. That refers to Jesus' ascension. So it's a reference to Jesus' return after his resurrection. So the cross is getting closer. It's not here yet but it is indeed getting closer. It says, as that time's come, it's dangerous to go to Jerusalem, but it says here that he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Despite the disciples not getting it, despite the people having a wrong idea about him, and despite the tide of all the nation against him, Jesus made a choice to finish his mission. You know, it's interesting, in Mark 10, 32, he mentions that Jesus' determination, his face, the look on his face in such danger and hatred, it blew the disciples away. It blew them away. They They didn't get it. You know, Thomas, at one point in time, he says, you know, they say, well, let's just go up with him and go die with him. I mean, at least he was willing to go with Jesus, but, you know, he certainly was not excited about the prospect. Jesus' determination absolutely blew the disciples away. Why? Romans 5.8. Even though we were all against him, Romans 5.8 says this, but God commends his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, while we still remained sinners, Christ died for us. It was his love. His love. God proves. He demonstrates. You know, God's not going to seek to prove his love to you by giving you a boyfriend or by giving you a girlfriend, you know. God's not going to seek to prove his love to you by giving you a job promotion, you know, or giving you a new home. He forever proved that he loves you because he went to the cross. His love for you should never be in doubt, no matter how many rough things you might be going through right now, because he went to the cross. If you ever doubt it, always think back to that. That when everyone was, no one was getting it, everyone was opposed to him, Jesus set his face steadfastly, the face of love, to go to the cross, to go to Jerusalem, to put himself in harm's way for our behalf. Now, the trip to Jerusalem from Capernaum is long, so most did not make that trip in one day, which means they would need to find somewhere to stay. So verse 52 says that Jesus sent messengers, some of his disciples, to go in before his face. And so they went and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans in this village, they did not welcome Jesus because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now, 
This wasn't so much a Jesus problem. This wasn't Samaritans against Jesus having their signs out going, no, you know, you, you can't come into our country. We don't like your radio show, you know. This wasn't so much a Jesus problem as a religious and a cultural problem. Culturally, the Jews considered the Samaritans polluted by their intermarriages uh, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. That's who the Samaritans are. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they uh, took the captives of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, took them captive back to Assyria, and then they had people from other nations, they put them into the area of the northern kingdom, which was Samaria. And so they intermarried with some of the Jews who were left there, and so they became called Samaritans. Now the Jews, the two tribes, and the Levites, who, you know, they were conquered by Babylon later on, but they were a different nation, they considered those people half-breeds. They considered them to be not fully Jews because of those intermarriages. So although Jesus loved everybody and never treated the Samaritans that way, he was a Jew. And so that would keep the Samaritans kind of with prejudice toward him. They would not like him because he was a Jew. Now, not only is there a cultural issue here, but religiously, the Samaritans had a quarrel with the Jews over where to worship. The Jews, correctly, said that God was to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. But remember when the ten tribes broke away and Jeroboam became their king, what was the wicked thing that Jeroboam did? He said, if I let them go down to Jerusalem every year to worship the Lord, every, every feast to worship the Lord, they're going to forget how bad it was under Solomon. They're going to forget how bad Rehoboam was to us, how harsh he was, how much he taxed them. And I'm going to lose their loyalty, and they're going to come kill me and rejoin with their brothers. And so he said, I'm going to build two temples up in the north that God did not approve of. They were abominations in the Lord's eyes. He made golden calves crazy how we repeat ourselves, isn't it? Made golden calves and put them in these temples. So the northern kingdom had a different worship philosophy. They had a different way to worship God, a wrong way. So they had this quarrel with the Jews who said that God should be worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans contested that everyone should be worshiping at Mount Gerizim. So since Jesus was likely headed to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, they would not like him even more. You know, y'all, you're, you don't, won't worship where we say you should worship, and you, you, you're prejudiced against us, even though Jesus wasn't. So they don't welcome him. Oh, you're going to Jerusalem for the feast? Well, you can find somewhere else to stay. Now, that puts a wrench into their travel plans, doesn't it? And it's a huge slight to Jesus in a place where hospitality is, is, is really high up on the priority level. We don't tend to have a high hospitality, uh, put a high value on po- hospitality in our culture. But in that culture, one of the most insulting things you can do is be inhospitable. And so this is a huge slight to Jesus and his team. So in light of the mounting opposition against Jesus, now this happens, James and John, they've had enough. And so when his disciples, James and John, they realized this, that they were gonna snub Jesus like this, They said, well, we got a solution for this. Lord, would you like us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume him, even as Elijah did? That's some extreme measures, isn't it? Hey, hey, you want to come over? Would you like to come over to our house for lunch today? No. Fine. We'll burn your house down. (laughs) Kill everybody inside. That's our solution to that problem. 
Now, the reference, of course, is to Elijah, who at the time in the Old Testament, when I believe it was the Samaritan army was coming for him, uh, yeah, the the, um, king's army, Assyrian army, not uh, Samaritan, the Syrian army was coming uh, for him, and uh, and Elijah, because basically they knew that Elijah was tipping off the king of Israel where the Syrian troops were. He wanted to do away with Elijah. And so Elijah, you know, he says, Lord, if, if there's a prophet in Israel, there's a God in Israel, wipe him out. Whoosh, you know, wipes him out. And these soldiers keep coming. They keep wiping out. And finally, this one guy, he's a God-fearing man. He goes, prophet, I'm only here because the king sent me. Please don't kill me and my soldiers. You know, and he leads them right to the gates of Israel, you know. And yet he tells the king of Israel, don't you destroy them. Because again, God's not out to destroy people. That's what he's trying to tell the king of Syria. That's what he's trying to tell the king of Israel. You both need to repent. I'm not out to destroy anybody. So it's funny they use this reference in a story that's about not destroying people. And they say, God, you want us to destroy? The, the phrase there, wilt thou, means, do you want us to do this? Is it your wish? You're probably pretty angry right now, Jesus. We'll take care of this, though. James and John, they had just seen Elijah on the mountain, right? they just seen him there. And they asked why Jesus, why did Elijah come down with us? I thought Elijah, the scriptures prophesy that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah and prepare us for the Messiah. Why didn't he come with us down the mountain? Well, maybe they figure, well, Elijah's not here. We need to take matters into our own hands. Truth is, I'm not sure we can know what they were thinking with this question because Jesus tells them they didn't know what they were thinking. Jesus, when he says, when they say this, he turns around. Apparently, Jesus had already started for the next village. He's not offended at all. Do you know, God hates sin, but he's pretty impossible for you to offend to a point where he's going to reject you. The Lord says all manner of sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven, except one thing, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, it's very clearly to reject the revealed truth about Christ. There's only one sin that can't be forgiven. It's unbelief. If you're going to persist in your unbelief, there's no salvation outside of faith. You know? There's no salvation outside of trust in Christ. So if you're going to persist in your unbelief, that's the only thing that will keep you out of heaven. But if you place your trust in Christ, everything can be forgiven. Even blasphemy against the Son, the Bible says. Jesus was not someone who was easily offended. You know, He did more damage to a fig tree than ever did to a person. So He's not easy to offend. And and by the way, you and I should not be easy to offend. We should not be easy to offend either. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.